0: Hello and welcome to Bad Impressions, the marketing podcast that's usually funny and we one day will hope be insightful. Maybe tonight's the night, who knows? I think we have a guest that gives us a higher than average chance of actually pulling out some marketing knowledge nuggets. That's right, we're pivoting to an ideas podcast, episode three, still finding our wings. Tonight, as usual, you have myself, Lee, as well as Ryan Farley and David Shola, And our guest now is Olivia Hawkins. Olivia, do you want to give the listeners at home or on the go or perpetrating heinous acts while listening to podcasts or whatever our audience does an intro to yourself?
1: Of course. And thank you for having me. My name is Olivia Hawkins. I've had the distinct pleasure of working with the host of this podcast over the years. Glad to be here. My background uh, come from agencies in both Atlanta and New York, largely independent agencies, working with really, really small clients, small businesses who are growing all the way up to some more household names, so Calvin Klein, J.P. Morgan, Chase, aka the bank, and even a, a little cookie brand called Oreo that the folks at home might have tried before.
0: I would hope so. It's a household <laughs> name in the true conventional sense of the word. Speaking of Oreo, Mondelez made waves in a way last week with their new slogan uh, that stated they're no longer marketing, they're humaning. And if you ask to yourself, what is humaning? Humaning is when storytelling becomes story doing, at which point I started story spewing, as did many. There's a lot of discussion about the slogan out there. You've both been close to the brand, its people and its process, do you have any personal takes on how theoretically hundreds of people looked at humaning is when storytelling becomes story doing and thought, sounds good.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think as you were kind of alluding to it in your lead in kind of when you're asking us both Olivia and I kind of directly who both have touched the the Mondelez brands in some form or fashion in the past. I think a lot of what stems from a lot of this is is an evolution that we as in Olivia and I had had done when we were working on the account kind of across the portfolio in North America there was our marketing tactics as a digital agency of course half everything has to have a name and it was called personalization at scale which was essentially just like DCO light is what I always like referred to it internally taking your large like total population of anyone who eats cookies or crackers and dividing that in some capacity into two to four you know different segments based off of interest and or hopefully over indexes in searches for these brands online or in some other way that we can develop some research. And then make sure that we're pairing the creative messaging that should resonate innately with, with this audience in, in some capacity. So there was an element in personalization at scale that took what we were doing and began the the humanizing element of, of the brand is that the brand meets the consumer kind of where they are instead of arguably the other side of CPG marketing where there's just one big message and like everyone, you know, just like gets pumped and pushed that message out uh, into, into the wild. I think that is the the genesis of how humaning kind of like became a part of the the Mondelez like vernacular. I haven't been a part of that f- for a while. So I don't necessarily know exactly what was happening behind closed doors, but I would venture a guess that it was stemming from that in some capacity.
1: Yeah, it, it has to be. And you know, it's not to say that Mondelez has done a bad job with this. There's definitely been success stories, whether that's, you know, some of the bigger brands, household names, and, you know, the application of a marketing or community-driven insight. One of the things that I loved about working with Oreo brand, as an example, is their support of the LBGTQ community, starting, you know, many, many years ago with 100 years of Oreo and coming to life this way with you know the rainbow Oreos that originally started as a an Instagram post that are now an actual package of rainbow filled Oreos. That's an example of you know what I would call successful personalization or, or humaning, if you will, to include those groups. In general, right, I don't know that it's necessary for a big brand to come out and publicly disclose, you know, we're marketing to humans. I don't think anyone's marketing to not humans that I'm aware of. Humans are usually the purchase decision maker. Um, wait till you
0: hear our next sponsor live read. <laughs> it's gonna blow your mind.
1: I can't wait. I can't wait for the the bad impression of the sponsors.
0: Debit cards and... for dogs.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I've never had a pet.
0: Whoa! Big guest factoid. <laughs> no pets, Olivia. I
1: did. Um. I should say, my college boyfriend gave me a beta fish. I thought you were gonna co- say
0: that was your main pet, like that was as close as you got was a college That's, boyfriend.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, I just feed him twice a day, take him for a walk. No, <laughs> the fish uh, did last longer than the relationship, and had a very on-brand Atlanta name, Wheezy F. The F is for fishy. May he rest in peace.
0: I think it's something tangible out of a college relationship besides like a tattoo or a child or a restraining order. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> uh, well, well have... listen, Wheezy F was like the only thing that had been around in my life for many years until potentially these plants, they're doing great. This wasn't a planned segment, but did you guys know that one of my plants is named after Maggie Riley?
0: Wow. That's yeah. That's an honor. I can't believe you get to be with Maggie Riley every day. Ryan is so jealous right now.
3: That's a dream come true. Oh
0: man, we should all have something memorializing uh, a New York bar in our home. I'm actually
3: holding a pen right now from Maggie Riley's.
0: Oh my God.
3: (laughs) Of course you are.
0: (laughs) That's your important document (laughs) signing pen is a pen from Maggie Riley's bar in Hell's Kitchen. Incredible. That's correct. I have them
3: in a lot of colors. Um,
0: I bet you do. I also <laughs> love that they've basically become the true sponsor of this podcast, just because we can't stop talking about them. Uh, Ryan, if you want to okay. get the That's uh, yeah.
1: okay. We can tell uh, some stories about Walters, too.
0: That's true. We we just need to get all their addresses and start doing, like, official sponsor-style reads for the whole, the whole Hell's Kitchen bar conundrum. Before we get into the uh, more serious matters of the podcast here with Olivia, we do want to do a quick... Quality Assurance Run, a fact check of last week's podcast that got out before the editor could get to it. We spent a lot of time discussing a shadowy group called Elliot Capital, which does not exist. We have a. That's true. That's true. We're working on the LLC paperwork. It's Elliott Management. Zach Doyle, our previous guest, tried to get me back on the right path there, but I stubbornly pushed it back into Elliott Capital territory. So that's our our main fact check. If you are looking for the shadowy nest of patent trolls at the center of all the sort of nasty mudslinging and digital social media, it's not Elliott Capital, it's Elliott Management. Now that we've washed the dirty laundry, we'll move into sort of the main event here. Olivia, you know, you introduced yourself and mentioned this a little bit, but your career has pretty exclusively been generally with independent agencies and in some cases some sort of hybrid Marcom digital service companies, but always generally more medium-sized than mega-huge. I have to remind myself every day that the company I currently work at has 4,400 employees. That's it? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know, right?
1: That's a lot of people to disappoint.
0: Yeah, I know. I've got about 4,100 of them done. I actually started with the CEO, but anyway. We uh, need to get you
2: a new advent calendar for the remaining 300 and you just knock them off. All A new uh, all admin December.
0: calendar. It's like 25 little admin who are all angry at me. And every day of December, I'll open a new little thing and there'll be a new guy like, what the hell is going on with this report? And it's a calendar I can ignore.
1: And then it uh, ends with just one person, like an intern. It was like, I just summed the reach.
0: The immaculate reach. (laughs) How did you find such a perfect reach number with no math, (laughs) immaculate reach. Olivia, mazel to you for spending most of your time in, let's be real, the more productive segment of our industry. You've also worked alongside a lot of sort of the behemoths and I imagine you have a, a pretty unique perspective on organization type, organization size, What will the ad org of the future look like more between any of them and all that you've accrued in your career?
1: Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. I got my start. I graduated from Georgia Tech, knew I wanted to work at an agency. They don't really recruit from Georgia Tech because most people go into management, consulting and finance and all those very lucrative things that I could have chosen as my career path. And it's one of those things that I always knew. And it's not even because of like Mad Men or any of those things. I just knew working for a smaller agency would be a good way to learn a lot of things really quickly. And my whole game plan was like, if I hate it, I'll leave after a year or two and I can pivot into a brand marketing role, go in house somewhere, figure it out. But I I owed it to myself to give it a try because I thought it was going to be interesting. So I went to work for a very small agency north of Atlanta, primarily working with small mid-sized businesses where their marketing media budget, whatever we want to call it, was usually less than six figures. And that would include agency fee, media spend, and potentially salary of an employee who was dedicated to marketing. So my first agency gig, if you will, was everything from social media management to running paid search ads to, you know, if they didn't have photos on the website, showing up with a camera and taking pictures for the website, really like anything that could be called digital marketing. I love that experience. I was very humbled by it, right? Because you're working with these small brands who were companies that, that just didn't really know how digital worked, what it was, and you know, sometimes they did have some level of marketing or advertising spend, usually with out of home, more than anything, full service providers, if you will, who advertise in their neighborhoods or areas, but never really thought about digital real estate. And so I met this organization where there's, you know, less than 50 people, I was set in a leadership position really early on. And things were very, very transparent. You knew exactly how much money was coming in. You knew how every project was quoted. You knew what the biggest L's were that the organization was taking in terms of expenses, which was really, you know, equal parts I'll say refreshing because you had the transparency. And then at other times, potentially a little bit worrisome because you knew when months weren't as good and as profitable. So it was really interesting to go from that where you knew 100% of the picture to throughout my career as it progressed, working at bigger and bigger companies where things were less and less transparent, You know, less and less, I'll say obvious in terms of like company performance. But what's interesting, and one of the things that I, I've loved about working with, we'll call them like smaller independent agencies and teams is that there is a lot of ownership on what you're doing. And um, what that means is you know responsibility, in what we commit to responsibility and what we're delivering and you know collectively working towards some sort of performance goal whether that's delivering more efficient ads higher performing conversion rates depends on your your burrito kpi i suppose more guacamole more better
0: exactly On the element around understanding your own agency's performance, something that I I find really interesting is sort of deciding when, where, how, and to what end to dole out information on agency fiscal stuff. For an agency or or any sort of Marcom entity, I feel like I've I've now seen the whole spectrum from things kind of like what you're describing, where it's just a loose and free-flowing information system, to situations where virtually nobody but the finance team ever understands anything about where money comes from and where money goes, where I guess two sides kind of butt up against each other in marketing. And actually, our our previous guest, Zach Doyle, had a kind of an interesting example of it where he came from a, a role at Tumblr in which he was a revenue generating employee so had a revenue goal was cognizant of his own revenue contribution and other people's revenue contributions in that role at Tumblr you could actually honestly do the best possible job and if you missed your revenue mark you know because of the roll of the dice that was kind of just tough do you think it's it's role dependent for it to be helpful to know about agency financials do you think more transparency or the most transparency is always best have you kind of formed an opinion yeah. of that?
1: It's interesting when I look at organizations that I work at or even others in the space and I have friends who, who work there now, the more transparency leadership is, I think in general, the more tenured employees are. Again, I'm that's on a data-driven statement. I don't have hard
2: evidence. We're all big on anecdotal evidence around here, so...
1: Right. Anecdotally, I will say, right, you know, because they, as an employee, right, you feel more plugged in, you feel more aware of the situation. And when, you know, you're having the conversation about your own personal compensation or, or situation, it's a little easier to understand when you don't get the raise, the bonus, whatever it is that you're, you're asking for. And so this interesting thing sort of happens where, you know, for better or for worse, people stick around sometimes longer than maybe they should because they feel some sort of obligation. I will say what I have seen for some of my friends who have stuck it out for better or for worse through some of those organizations where things are transparent, they've ended up in positions where they have performance-based bonuses that are tied to overall revenue, team revenue, whatever we want to call it, so it's, it's, the Tumblr example is interesting, right? If you're an individual tied to a goal, even like a sales role, and you're tied to some sort of individual quota, you obviously incentivize yourself as, as an individual to get ahead. But if you're more focused on the team, your pod, your whatever department, let alone the, the overall organization working its way towards the goal, it's a little bit easier to have that conversation of, all right, do I help? my friend on this other team who has this question, who's out of bandwidth, do I traffic their ads? Do I join a meeting with them? Versus, you know, when it's just sort of the the man or the machine, and you just sort of say, tough cookies, guess you won't be at Walter's tonight for two for five
2: PBRs. I'm wrestling with a like, counterpoint, is too much information a hindrance? And like, we talk about transparency. And I think that that's It probably outweighs uh, the point I'm I'm going to make for the understanding of like where all the cards are on the table and and making the whole like conversation, conversation. You know, I think a lot of employees always feel like there's some shady elements that are happening. If all the financials aren't, aren't disclosed and, and people aren't like getting what they need. But I also think on the other side and like small agencies or um, even mid-sized agencies in terms of knowing revenue and like scopes and like all of this as an entry-level person, if like a client shutters or leaves your business and you know like the, the total revenue and those kind of things, like that's almost like not something that an entry-level person should like worry about. But maybe it's like good for understanding in terms of, Job security and like those kind of things that like is a, a real like concern and a threat in terms of like if you lose enough clients, like the agency is gonna have to like lay off people and those kind of things. So there's a part of me that thinks that that could be potentially fear-inducing, which starts to get in your own way and, and those kind of things in terms of like not being able to be your your best performing self because you're worried about things that are definitely way above your pay grade and you have like no absolute control over the number of clients and the revenue that they're pushing through the agency and those kind of things. But It was playing devil's advocate, I guess, just providing that other side of the coin as like, yeah, like there could be too much transparency sometimes. And I think that's like a a delicate balance that agencies need to make or administration just says like, this is what I philosophically believe. And there's pros and cons on either side. And this is the side of the fence that I'm going to stand on.
1: It's revenue, but it's also expenses, right? As a, we'll call it mid low level employee, you have no say in the 20 year lease right? Or whatever agreed upon potentially like large loss is. And so, you know, you you see what you're bringing in, you see the revenue that that you're driving that's tied to to your accounts, you understand the scope of work, but you're not seeing where, or you're not feeling always where all that money is going. I will say where I have appreciated this, not only in terms of like my own personal like situation or managing people, but it has made it a little bit easier to then back into like how we scope our projects and knowing when to scope something as small potatoes or some sort of flat fee whatever we want to call it versus saying okay this is something that needs to be a little bit larger so you know, if you look at the RFP process, somebody comes to an agency and they say, hey, we want you to run our ads. There's a hundred different ways you could scope it, right? You could have some sort of flat all out fee and you say, you're going to get 10 employees for the year and this is how much it costs, all the way down to, you know, time and materials where you just say, here's the hourly rate and as much time as it takes is how much time it takes. And when you, as an employee or a manager, whatever we would call it, understand the financials there, I feel like it's a little bit easier to say, okay, here's how we should set up the team where everyone's mutually incentivized to do well.
2: Yeah, it definitely makes sense for, you know, your department heads or your, even your team leads to kind of understand the financials of those kind of things. But I definitely think that there's an oversharing to where senior analyst or even analysts and senior analysts or like anyone who's actually not having to make staffing and, and team management decisions. Like, I think that that could just like burden them to you know, to know too much information. But I think it's valiant when companies like honor them and puts everyone on the same playing field in terms of like everyone gets a baseline, same amount of information in terms of the success of of the agency and those kind of things.
1: It also kind of goes back to, I feel like the conversation you guys were having with Zach, like the more flat your organization is, it's less about who at what level is taking what role or responsibility. It's that mutual goal, right? And so instead of saying like, I only am this percent of the team. So I'm doing that percent of the work or whatever. It's more like, okay, you know, this is what needs to happen in the next two days. So we're all going to buckle in and get it done. But yeah, I mean, listen, I feel like the bigger your company is, the more levels or hierarchical. It has to be for better or for worse, middle management with middle management with middle management.
0: The the mini layered management sandwich. I think it's extremely helpful to give people guidance on what they're supposed to be doing and not doing with any information that they have and they're given. They're open comp law firms, which are law firms where everybody knows what everyone else makes. And it's seen as this sort of utopian level of transparency. What starts happening is with the information that people have on their billable hours or other people's billable hours directly linkable to exactly how much they're compensated versus that person. You basically sort of get a thousand little fiefdoms of people making like macro business decisions for themselves versus the firm. You get things like if somebody is is put on some five-year long-term value delivering project, but they're delivering no revenue that year, people see that and come with torches and pitchforks for their salary. And that's kind of an extreme example. I think if organizations made it clear what was expected of any given person with their level and view into information, it would be helpful because, and I've dealt with this at multiple organizations, sometimes you have people who are put on accounts that are known to be extremely easy to run and not necessarily much of a test that have a lot of budget. And the next thing you know, you have someone presenting the size of their media portfolio versus the average person. And you have the awkward conversation of, A, nobody actually thinks you drove that revenue, which you weren't expected to. So that's fine. This is not an organization where we think our senior analysts are, are selling us up, you know, and that's our main driver. And, and B, you were, you were put here as your light load. So I think, I think it helps to communicate what people are supposed to do with information they get, which I obviously have not done perfectly in the past, as I'm recounting now. Have you seen as much of this struggling in this new project-based realm as much as everyone else, or have oh, yeah. you luckily dodged that?
1: No, it's it's interesting, right? Like I was on some calls the other day with um, you know a, a company that we've been helping out, and they're working with an ad execution team who sold in what I feel like was unrealistic goals around conversion rates and what they'd be able to deliver as far as a return on ad spend, but it was sold in as like a 30-day project. Well, 30 days is probably not enough time to learn and optimize and and get to a place where you can meet that goal. It was at the end of the 30 days, someone said, you know, "Well, well, we didn't meet the goal, so we're out. And that was the project was to meet the goal. Separately, you know, there have been, I think, success stories, right? If it's an audit, if it's something that you can sort of tangibly look back and say, we've accomplished that, that that works, right? Where it's project-based, it's tied to that actual deliverable. But if you can't tie it to um, some sort of product, I guess, at the end, it's tough because we work in a performance-driven medium and you're always going to have somebody who says well you said you'd also do x y and z
0: it's something i see a lot and i struggle to have a good answer for anyone besides kind of just that which is you're either both aligned on what realistic expectations are or you aren't and virtually every problem that gets marked down as it was hours based when it should have been uh you know a project milestone based or or whatever wild structure that someone has dreamed up that allegedly would have fixed it all really just boils down to misalignment of expectations. I struggle with any idea that would consistently work to ameliorate this. I don't know if anyone has one right now. Share it if you do. No, no miracle cure for the modern ad contract.
1: No, no silver bullet here.
0: <laughs> oh, well. With that, I I think we had to move on to something that we also have a a unique body of experience in. As an instructor at General Assembly, and a a sort of general industry mentor as well, as someone who has worked in management and leadership at advertising services organizations, you've kind of taught in two classrooms, not just only two classrooms, literally, but... Literally just two. Yeah, I mean, especially now in COVID, no need to expand the number, but you know, you've you've taught in a setting where you're literally principally an instructor for a very specific set of digital marketing oriented skills. And you've also been responsible for the sort of general mentoring and education, but in the role or form of being on a a team at an organization. And I was wondering if you've you've kind of gained any salient lessons, you know, on the differences between those and, and what skills are best developed in the former or the latter.
1: Yeah. First of all, worth mentioning, I'm I'm extremely passionate about education and not just because of my education at Georgia Tech, go Jackets. But I, I do feel very strongly about sharing knowledge and always have. So I was a tutor in middle school. I figured out that paid twice as much as babysitting. And that all you had to do is basically explain how to do algebra to kids who already knew how to do it but they were stubborn didn't want to do their homework it was a a great gig but i I found that i was just super passionate about helping people realize i don't want to say just like their potential because it's it's not just their potential but realize that they are capable they they do know these things and it's just sometimes uh, approaching materials or looking at it like a little bit of a different way and so i was able to get back in education through General Assembly um, at first in Atlanta, as well as New York, um, as a digital marketing instructor. So, you know, you're working in, um, it's called like a part-time capacity. So I taught the same class like 50 times for the intro to digital marketing, which at this point, I mean, I can do it hungover. I can do it in my sleep. I probably do do it in my sleep. I don't even know. it. I tell the same couple of jokes, but, you know, it's interesting because there are things that I know people very tangibly learn from that, especially if they've never really taken a marketing course where they can walk away and they can say, I now understand the difference between, you know, for example, paid owned and earned media and understanding, you know, how we segment different marketing channels and and why maybe you leverage one more than another. I've done really, really tactical boot camps, right? Which is um, a lot of times around like Google analytics is is one. And, you know, it's how to create reports, how to understand segments. You know, you're gonna walk away understanding how to look at your website's performance in Google analytics. What I feel like has to come from like a relationship over time, whether that's through mentorship or management is I think the deeper context. So understanding why a number might change, whether that's um, your conversion rate or bounce rate or something like that. Understanding, you know, the different optimizations or levers that are available for you to, to pull, to influence those things as a marketer. That comes with, with time and we'll call it like on the job experience. You can, I think in the classroom setting, and I've, I've gone through this pretty recently as we've been working on a course, you can give examples but it is hard to think of every possible thing that could come your way when you're in front of a a classroom or in front of a group setting. And so, yes, you teach to the middle, you think of the most applicable, understandable example, but inevitably someone has to experience their own website, their own ads, whatever it is for them to really say, Oh, I I get it now. And this is how I'm going to react. This is what I'm going to do differently.
0: Randy, you're an academic exceller. And also we're gonna do a little ageism here on the podcast. Hit that cancel button, listeners. The most recently graduated from university. Was there anything that struck you about entering the professional world of digital marketing that hearing what you know Olivia's layering as the what to get from where's that you found either totally lacking but there was a signpost of, of where to get it or that you kind of felt like you were you were wandering the desert not even knowing which direction to turn for water
3: well i'll be honest i didn't know what a pivot table was in college so you know i didn't I don't... either
0: because we used spss and it literally cost me a job at 360i
3: but no i was just gonna say i think that the kind of growth of some of these more independent whether it's general assembly, masterclass, like these, these online things that you can do to educate yourself. One of the questions I was going to ask you, Olivia, was you know, how much of this knowledge in the digital marketing sphere that you've had, do you think like needs to come from a formal education versus how much of that can come from this career duration, mentoring and learning from people around you? So- I mean, that being said, I think a lot of it for me has been more environmental than, I mean, I did not take any sort of marketing class in college. I did not take any kind of business class. So I somehow fooled Lee into hiring me. He probably just got distracted by my Monday Night Football Chargers poster in the back of my dorm room.
2: That makes two of us.
0: (laughs) If they're a fan of the Fouts, you can't leave them out. That's what I always say. Dan and
3: as that fa- you said in your famous email, I would do a good job at some job someday, and here I we are. I was
0: confident.
1: Yeah. But
3: here we are.
1: And you um, and you did, Randy. You did.
3: Well, and I think so much of that is like, you know, how much are people will, and and I don't know if then this becomes like the type of person who can thrive in some of these environments where it really is like, what do you want to learn? It is it just the. The person with the credit card and the email address who can log into Google versus the person who's actually like able to think through a a more overarching strategy. So kind of a further question than answer, but I do think that that's part of where for me, the difference comes in of like, yeah, I mean, you want to advertise? We could advertise the podcast and all we need to do is, you know, put in our credit card on Google or Facebook, but how, like where does the strategy come in and I think a lot of the teaching part and I think this kind of gets to another question we've kind of pre-thought about of what can you not teach so I don't know if that
1: <laughs> yeah but it, it's interesting Ryan. like if you think about like your first couple of weeks on the job your first day did you know what an impression
3: was I did actually
1: Oh, perfect. Well, and
3: I, I credit that to my internship at uh, Crisp Media, where I took a lot of video screen recordings of my phone playing with mobile ads.
1: Wow. Look at you overachieving from day one. But no,
3: I mean, to your point, though, like the certain, and we talked about this with Sean in the first episode of all these acronyms. I mean, you know, you kind of have to fake your way through most of them. Like I knew what a CPM was, but did I know what a CPA was? No, but could I try to figure it out? Yes. Like different things yeah. like that, where does it even help to like study a glossary to start? No, I feel like you just kind of have to get thrown in and.
1: Oh yeah. I took some of a digital marketing out. class in 2012 with professor Michael Buchanan, who's still teaching at Georgia Tech. Um, we're helping him out this semester, which is super fun. And I, I found the digital marketing textbook which was just a PDF that I printed out and put into a binder because I'm a very analog person. And I literally had notes written in the margin that were just like, who decides when to see an ad? Like really stupid stuff. Like the consumer doesn't opt in. Like, he, like ads are forced upon you, right? But like these really philosophical questions that like I had when I was 19 and thinking about this as a career opportunity that there's not like really an answer to. And then there's other things where like, I did not understand for weeks that SEM and PPC were the same thing. Could not grasp it. Don't know why. Never will not, know.
2: Nothing like something having two names. That's a, that's a classic digital marketing, you know, switcheroo that we do all the time.
0: I'm such a semantic shit Lord that when people call it PPC, I immediately just like pull up every bot on a click medium. That's not search. Like, that's when, I, that's when I open the Outbrain tab, baby. Did you
3: – I was about to say, <laughs> did someone say Outbrain? Ooh,
0: you want to pay-per-click? Let me talk to you about my little friend, Traffic Junkie. There's an official we- plug on the podcast, the Pornhub DSP.
1: <laughs> Ask me about my robots. Ask me really? about my
2: viewability. Oh.
0: <laughs> Speaking of ads being forced upon you, it's time for our sponsor live read – The holiday season is upon us, and you've got loose uncles. Sure, uncles are fun in the house for a little bit, spiking the punch bowl, teaching the nephews and nieces swear words, but they're going to get out of hand, and you're going to get tired. Uncle Hutch, the hutch for storing your uncles. It's absolutely not a DTC doghouse that simply never got off the ground because of bad brand coding. It's a real product, and you can really buy it. UncleHutch.com. I've got a hutch for myself, so you know that we here at the podcast actually endorse it, Uncle Hutch. All right, now back to our regularly scheduled stuff. Academics.
1: Do you do you take yourself out to the hutch?
0: Usually, you know, when I'm getting a little rowdy, uh, one of my siblings does. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, not one of the off. other uncles, because you know we we can't be tr- trusted to police each other. We all go by the uncle code. This one does. Yeah. But yeah, Uncle Hutch, listeners of the podcast, please support us by buying this very real product, so that they know it works. Olivia, if, if you could, if you could boil down, how do I know if I'm getting enough education out of my core job in digital marketing, and how do I know I'm not, and and where where should I go, and, and also help yeah. people understand what's reasonable. Like I think there are some jobs where you might say here's what I'm getting. And oh, that that's bad. You shouldn't be having to outsource so much of mm. this. And there's some I, jobs where that's not the case.
1: Yeah, I, I think to answer the first part of that question, right, there, there's a difference between gaining uh, an experience and getting an education. And that's, you know, when we talk about higher education and the bubble, which is the university system in the United States, we spend a lot of money to go to college. And it's, at this point, much more about the friends you make, the experience you have, the growing up you do, the activities you partake in, than it is about the 12 to 15 hours a week you spend in a room with 30 other people your age, reeking of alcohol and trying to learn something. There is this aspect of you learn and you grow and you acquire critical thinking skills when you when you go through that, but could you google a lot of what you learn in college like potentially yes you know are you learning it from an expert not necessarily there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's false and and not the best representation of whatever it is and and biased in a lot of ways but if you're thinking about ways to learn whether you're a college student an entry-level employee or just a, a human in general if you will there's a lot of different ways and places you can ask questions, and continuing education for adults is more accessible than ever. Um, you know, back in, in the day, whatever career path you, you chose was sort of it for you for a lifetime of 40 years in your working career. But you do see people pivoting more in and out of marketing roles, in and out of business ownership, in and out of verticals. So I think it's, it's this interesting time in which we live where it's the age of, of information, the age of misinformation, which we don't need to go into, but we might hit a point in the next couple of years where you're hiring people at an entry level who are 17, 18, 19 and never went to college, but are capable of, of learning and experiencing certain things, right? Like I don't, I don't want a 17-year-old performing like cardiac surgery on me anytime soon. But would I I trust a 17, 18, 19 year old to run ads on Facebook? Probably.
0: Just say you hate Doogie Hauser and go. <laughs> no, that that's a good point. Yeah, I think medical training is, is probably a little less Googleable. Although here's where I feel like half of my friends who were doctors would be like, don't look at my search history. Stomach is where? <laughs> um
2: Anyway, where, where is I babby coronavirus from?
0: yeah how is babby formed oh yeah how is babby one form. of the ultimate yahoo answers of all time <laughs> that was actually a week two lesson for ryan yahoo answers i remember that and the japanese animated website. series prince of tennis oh. um anyway hitting hit the home stretch here do you have any quick thoughts olivia i'm from atlanta you're from atlanta david Scholas has lived in atlanta Uh, We've also all spent a lot of time in New York. We're both back in Atlanta. You more purposely, you know, setting sail for the homeland. Me more adrift on wreckage, washing up in a parent's basement. So let's go to you for this question, since I'm just a tumbleweed blown in on the wind here. Any quick already, like, observations of the difference in professional culture, specific to advertising or not specific to advertising between Atlanta and New York?
1: Yeah, I will say um one of the things that was like most striking for me leaving Atlanta to Southeast, it's very do what you gotta do whenever you gotta do it. Laid back, everyone left the office, 515. You know, a lot of times I would stay late, which meant leaving around six o'clock when I was was first working in Atlanta. And I remember people being like, Oh, you, you know what are you working on you can get out of here and I was like I love the last hour of the day because my mind is clear you guys have left and I can like finish up my thoughts meanwhile I I do feel like there's a certain culture and I won't just say it's New York but like bigger cities bigger organizations of like the, the hustle or the grind of you know if you're not sitting at your desk you're not moving forward and progressing which I don't think is always the the case unless you only have a desktop computer, in which case, yeah, maybe you do need to sit at your desk to look at your computer. That was one of the things that was most striking to me. The other interesting, I don't know if we'll call it like a hot take, in Georgia or the Southeast, it's very, I don't wanna make you from South South, like they're they're lazy or lackadaisical, but like if you are going to a doctor's appointment, you are doing something for your family, whatever, there's this culture of like, follow up, follow through, let me know everything about your personal life, you know, take as much time as you need, whatever. I don't know that that's like true other parts of the, the world or, or country, but one of the things that um, I found when I first moved to New York was I almost was like oversharing, because I was like, of course everyone wants to know about my aunt who just passed away. And it's not to say that people didn't care. But I'm so used to being very plugged into all of my team or coworkers' personal lives and what was going on, and I feel like it wasn't always the same in a different environment.
0: David, any thoughts?
2: I' kind of feel like I've kind of like lived kind of all over uh, well mostly in in the, the southeast and then kind of midwesty a little bit. but yeah, I think there's there is a big like there's a difference in how people like to get their, their work done. And I think that was pretty evident. And, and maybe now that like work from home kind of thing is spacing out and uh, spreading out people's like work patterns. But, you know, when I was in Atlanta working for Lee, just, you know, nose to the grindstone trying to impress uh, my, my new boss, you know, having the laptop is like you would, you would work for a while or you would work and you would stay until Lee left. And that was not good uh because lee likes to stay pretty late into the office uh because he operates on a kind of a shifted timeline uh so you uh
0: kick the day off on mountain time yeah you know
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh so i thought know, it was get-
3: hawaiian time
0: <laughs> oh it's getting there it's moving <laughs> that direction randy don't <laughs> not talk about COVID hours
2: aloha yeah. so there was there was a lot of like trying to impress upon like the group or like you don't leave before your boss leaves kind of thing and Lee would be like go on like get out of here you're not good you're not going to stay past me I can tell you that and so there, there was that element and what happened from that is and even like when I like started working for for Vayner which I was still in Chattanooga or in Atlanta for a while before I moved up to the Chattanooga office there was a lot of like leave at 5 45 or six you go home and you eat dinner and you like have like your downtime and then you plug back in which is when i moved to new york it was very much just push through and work all the way through until your day is done and then you go home so i think that's been kind of like the the biggest difference you know and, and now that i'm in like covid work uh work from home style it's like that kind of is now just generally kind of going back to to doing that and, or that's now like more like normal place so I think that's like one of the, the biggest things is just like when and how people like accomplish their tasks. And like, you know, New York would would cram it in, um, they'd finish the office and there'd be like that solidarity in, in the office for everyone that was staying late. And then mm-hmm. they would drag themselves to Maggie Riley's or Billy Marks. Um, or,
1: you know, get some uh, cheese steaks from, uh, oh my God, I just
2: forgot what it's called. Whitman's? Uh, Whitman's, yeah. Whitman's,
1: yeah. The, the 8 p.m. dinner order, very important. But David, I think it's so interesting, right? If we compare the Southeast to at least some of the teams that, that we were working on, it's, it's also worth mentioning that people were in different life stages yep. where you had plants or dogs or children or parents at home that um, required, you know, your your attention. And I feel like in New York, again, especially the teams we were on, it's like the the younger hustle and grind and we're all there working towards that, that common goal. And then it's not to say you couldn't have those things, but it was it was a different a way of approaching a work-life balance than I would say like how certain people prioritize things in the Southeast.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's also very, that's very true because I mean, you know, I got what I would say a, a late start into digital marketing because of my, my pit stop in, in Athens, Georgia to, to pick up my, my master's degree. The which cesspool
3: me- of
1: the
2: South. Well, we can debate that at a a later date or off air, but there was the whole, you know, coming out as an entry-level person, a few years older than your your general, like, entry-level person, and then when I moved to New York, I moved to New York pretty late, late in life into where, you know, I'd developed becoming like a homebody or you know um, have my dogs at home and my girlfriend and like the whole it was, it was weird like kind of like feeling like a, like an outsider a little bit and just in terms of like my life does not reflect this life and I'm just older in a different stage and had developed that you know in Atlanta and then again in Chattanooga and now moving up to New York it was just slightly different in terms of like nah like I'm still just like going to go home, you know, and and uh, I'll see you all time tomorrow, which was probably a lot, a lot there's probably a lot of jokes made at my expense for being an old man. And so I think that there's also like that element as well as like you are in like, sometimes in like two different like spaces, whether it was developed environmentally or just you are in two different like life spaces based off of just the team dynamics and and those kind of things. I'm
1: curious, yeah. Ryan, to hear from from you and your more recent work experience what that's like, because I feel like you're working with a little bit of a, a different group now.
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely, well, and one of the things I was going to say too is the, I'm curious about the ways that working from home and COVID have changed these behaviors across the board, because I certainly feel like I love it. I mean, I was a person in college where like, At 6.30 every morning, I was at the coffee shop doing my reading because my prime brain period is from like 6 to 10 a.m. I know Lee probably can't relate to that. Um, Sorry, I'm
0: not 25% rooster.
3: (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. But finding the time of day where you get your best work done. And I think, Olivia, that's what's been interesting for me, moving into a more in-house role where there is, if not just more people who are – further along in their careers who have spouses and children who, you know, before COVID were commuting into the city from suburbs and how that timeline shifts. Like there were certain people who I worked with who they were always in their office at 8am and I like to get there early. That was good for me, but they were leaving at 445 to catch that 530 train, you know? And so I think that's something that it's interesting as you try to navigate in that in-person world. But now I feel like it's it's worked out so much better for everyone. And I've been working East Coast hours on the West Coast and a lot of people, This I guess this is where my rooster gene comes in. But for me, I work from 5.30 to 2.30 and it's great. And then I'm done and I feel like I have a whole day to kind of go after work. So I'm curious to see how that culture aspect changes or doesn't in the next year as people find their way back to offices or don't I mean I think we could have a whole other conversation on that whole concept because I know Olivia now you're kind of in a more permanently remote world anyway and you were looking at that before everyone else did so you're kind of a trendsetter which we knew but yeah just, but I, you know,
1: there's a big difference between remote work or whatever we want to call it when travel's on the table mm-hmm. and permanent I've now adopted a cactus, his name is Nigel Thornberry, because he requires weekly attention. And again, you know, you think about like what those priorities are and and sounds like for you, it's like, you wanna be able to have that daylight almost to do whatever it is, read your 100th book of the year by the pool with the dogs and, and all of that. And you're now able to prioritize that in a different way because of the current work situation. And I feel like in in general, in the before times, it was really hard to find positions that allowed you to balance that. And I'm curious to see what it does to the workforce, because people now can prioritize and say, I I am only evaluating remote jobs, right? In the same way that before you would only evaluate based on the city in which you currently live. I think it's going to make it really interesting for the next cycle of job seekers,
0: Olivia, uh, thank you for coming on. Before you go, we're, we're going to end with our traditional question. What's something in digital marketing right now? I mean, it doesn't have to be timely. It could be something that's been happening forever that you think is, is pretty funny, but pretty bad. We kind of like to see it go in a different direction to improve the discipline in all of our lives. But, you know, also maybe go in a direction where it's, it's still like pretty funny.
1: You know, I think one of the most interesting things was already discussed around how the platforms just all copy each other. But I will say this evolution of what I'll call the the personal brand phenomenon and, you know, which platform you choose and which audience you attract. It's not that it's bad, but I don't think it's great. You can tailor your message to different groups of people in different places. And they're not always going to be, you know, the most insightful tweets are the most insightful blog posts. The people I think who do it best are, are really only focused on one platform and one group, but there are those who have established, we'll call it like influencership in certain topics or areas. And again, I, I find it really funny. Every time I see the unboxing videos, every time I see the LinkedIn person who's just sort of repeating the same story that somebody else has already told anyone and everyone has a platform for better or for worse. I hope it heads into a direction that feels more authentic where people are speaking their truth or their interests and it's not monetized. It's not incentivized, but I mean, I have a love love hate relationship with, you know, people as brands.
0: That's super interesting, especially, you know, that distinct point about, some people's message that they is their core message whether it's in their life or their career or whatever that they're trying to get out there really is tailored to one particular platform or there's just one that they get I, I agree I think we are invited to create more selves than most of us are capable of or half any business creating and I'm a big Twitter user and I absolutely see people try to cross over there all the time it just fall flat I think it's a little bit of a a jealousy of the, the younger, more beautiful people thing. But I mean, everyone will say like, you can tell someone sucks at Twitter because they're good at Instagram, things like that. Is there anyone who you think is a sterling example, maybe in digital marketing, maybe not, maybe in something else, of someone who really does a platform well and, and sticks to that lane?
1: I don't know why, but it's, it's on my, my brain right now. But I love um, Kristen Bell and Dax Shepherd. They Instagram a ton. Occasionally, break out for different moments into Twitter and some other places, and they use it to authentically speak about being people, but also parents, and it plays really well into um, Hello Bello, so their diaper line, and I guess other baby products. Clearly, I'm not a mother. I'm not at this life stage, but you know, they they've really turned their life into something worth talking about while simultaneously maintaining privacy for their children, where they don't post images or photos of of their kids online, which I just think is, is so interesting. Again, a whole other conversation to be had about privacy and what you do and don't share, especially as it relates to, to your children. But I think they're a really good example where, you know, they're, they're telling a story and they're using it in a way that is digital marketing. They are building a brand, but they are not necessarily digital marketing influencers.
0: It's very interesting and a great example. I'm not familiar with what they're doing, but I think it's very interesting they managed to do it without posting their children, which I have learned as I come to know more parents with more different approaches is a huge issue to a lot of parents.
1: I mean, listen, I, for better or for worse, you know, Facebook and MySpace was around when I was in middle and high school. So there are photos of me on the internet that can never be reclaimed. And I get to vicariously live through every failed relationship I've ever had due to Facebook memory notifications. So you think about yourself as an individual and who you were 15 years ago, let alone at birth or whatever, and your ability as an individual to control what's shared, how it's shared. I am so thankful that no embarrassing child photos exist of me on the internet, but that's just luck of the draw when I was born, I guess.
0: Yeah, now you're, you're reminding me. I, I probably need to check sharing settings on a few different things. I, I think I technically still have a Facebook account. I haven't been on there in a while, but I think it's there.
1: I'm pretty sure we're friends. You're wearing like a, a beanie in your phone. Oh,
0: wow. I already know that's vintage. So.
1: Or, or maybe it's, it's that you show up as a suggested friend.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's honestly the level of friendship people should have with me at the most. Uh, not even acquaintance, but suggested friend. Yeah, I, I got to go check on that. Thank you for coming on the old podcast.
1: Yeah, it's good to catch up with you guys.
0: This has been another episode of Bad Impressions. If you would like to be a guest, have a great idea for a guest, or have any other feedback, please feel free to email us at sadmin, that's S-A-D-M-I-N, at badimpressions.online and we will get back to you in a timely fashion. You can also leave a comment on any podcast listening medium where comments are possible and we will absolutely read it and respond.